1: Norma McCorvey didn't want to become a poster child for abortion rights. The Texan waitress, 22 and unintentionally pregnant for the third time, was just looking for a way to end her pregnancy. It was the pair of feminist lawyers, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, who she met with in a Dallas pizza joint in early 1970, who realised that she might be their holy grail, the case they could use to overthrow bans on abortion across the US. Norma McCorvey is better known as Jane Roe, the plaintiff in one of the most famous Supreme Court judgments of all, Roe v. Wade. The great irony is that McCorvey never actually had an abortion. she had given birth to the so-called Roe baby in June 1970 and swiftly put it up for adoption. In her diary for 1973, she didn't even mention the case that secured her place in history and still marks the battle line between pro-choice and pro-life. Now, nearly 50 years later... Will Roe v. Wade soon be overturned? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Frodo, the Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why does abortion divide America? When the Supreme Court declined to block SB 8, a Texan law which prohibits most abortions after just six weeks, it gave the strongest signal yet that the conservative majority might be preparing to deny women the right to an abortion. The real test will come in a case on their docket from Mississippi, scheduled to be heard this fall. In a direct challenge to Roe, and the 1992 Planned Parenthood v Casey ruling which upheld it, the state wants to ban abortions after 15 weeks. Will Roe go? And what are the political implications of this fierce battle over abortion rights? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and Mian Ridge, the economist's social affairs correspondent. Mian, that's your official job title, but we tend to refer to you as the culture war correspondent. How are you doing? How's life in DC?
2: It's very good, thank you. I love the autumn and I'm um, very happy that my children are still back at school three weeks into the new term, having not been at school at all for basically a year and a half. So it's been life-changing. John, how
1: are you doing? I know that you're in Boston, which is not your favourite American city, and that you and Alyssa are still clearing out your basement.
0: I'm fine. I am in Boston gathering string for what I hope will be a really good episode in a week or two. Um, It's true that I'm less enthusiastic about Boston than about plenty of other cities, but we'll we'll park that there for now. And as for the home cleanup, you know, unfortunately, by the time I get back next week, we will probably have someone haul away the dear departed, waterlogged, non-working Prius, and uh, we may have some new walls and a non-noxious scent in our basement. Well, that sounds like progress. It is progress of a sort. Perhaps before we begin this podcast, unusually,
1: we should issue a warning to listeners. This is a subject that some people might find upsetting. There won't be any graphic or gory detail, but even so, it's a sensitive subject. So listen with that in mind. and we're going to be talking quite a lot about the Texas law that the Supreme Court recently declined to strike down. Can you tell us a bit about that and also about the Mississippi challenge that's going to come before the court soon.
2: So Texas has effectively, in the last couple of weeks, become the first state in America to have no abortion, to have a blanket abortion ban, because the law that it has bans abortions after six weeks, the point after which most abortions take place. So women are having to travel out of the state to access their constitutional right to an abortion. Meanwhile, uh, the Supreme Court has said that it will look at a law in Mississippi which has been blocked by a court but it's a law that bans abortion after 15 weeks so quite different from Texas but there's a lot of speculation that the Supreme Court is going to use this Mississippi ban to overturn or in some way substantially weaken Roe versus Wade.
0: I think it's important at the beginning to just lay out the legal framework that exists now. So in 1973, Roe v. Wade was decided, and it recognized that women had a fundamental right to an abortion up until the end of the second trimester, that is 27 weeks. And this right stemmed from the right to privacy that had been recognized by a previous case, Griswold v. Connecticut, under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. That trimester standard changed a bit in 1992 when the court decided Casey versus Planned Parenthood, and it held that a woman's right to an abortion existed up until the point of fetal viability. Now, what that did is it effectively made the date of when states can start imposing restrictions on abortions somewhat hostages to fortune, that is hostages to medical technology, that as the technology to care for premature babies improves, the date at which abortions can be legally obtained on demand is pushed back. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to be talking both about that Texas law and about the Mississippi challenge a
1: fair bit, because both of them are really important. But we're also going to have a go at answering this larger question of why unusually in America, compared with other rich countries, abortion remains such a polarising, heated, divisive political issue. With that in mind, I've been speaking to Mary Ziegler, who's a professor at the Florida State University College of Law and author of Abortion and the Law in America. She's been on the podcast before. The conventional wisdom is that abortion remains such a live issue in the States because its legality was decided by the unelected Supreme Court rather than by elected politicians. But Mary disagrees with that.
3: I think the problem with the arguments that it was Roe is that they ignore many other factors that are unique to U.S. history that have helped to polarize this debate. Obviously, some of it has to do with the social movements themselves that have never wanted to compromise. Some of it has to do with how central abortion is in U.S. politics in a way that really isn't true anywhere in Europe. And that wasn't immediately a result of Roe. So you have to go almost a decade after Roe to see political parties using abortion as a wedge issue and a way to reconstruct their coalitions and a way to turn voters out to the polls. If that was just about Roe, we would have expected to see that happening the first election we got. Same thing with Supreme Court nominations. The first several Supreme Court nominations after Roe have nothing to do with abortion and little to do with Roe and are unanimous. So it seems in part that what's happened in America was that there were politicians who saw, beginning in the late 70s and early 80s, abortion as a way of identifying swing voters who could deliver them elections. And there really is almost an outrage industry surrounding abortion in the United States, There's a lot of money raised. There are a lot of politicians who owe their careers to this issue. And so I think while Roe, you could say Roe was a problem, to say it was the problem is going to be proven wrong very quickly if this Supreme Court overrules Roe, because the debate is not going to de-intensify.
1: Mary, do you think the Supreme Court will overrule Roe? I mean, I have heard that argument for quite a long time coming from activists and so have (laughs) become a little wary of it just because you know each election is presented as you know the crucial one for for saving Roe. But I know from our conversations before you think actually this time it's for real. So can you explain why that is the case?
3: I think the most significant reason to think this time well there are two significant reasons. The most obvious is who's on the Supreme Court. Now you may be skeptical of that because we've had six conservatives on the court placed there by Republican presidents before. But I, I think in part what's changed since then is the process for selecting justices has changed. Presidents have done so less with an eye to the sort of Sandra Day O'Connor you know, consensus pick that everybody likes and more with an eye to pleasing base voters who want a sure thing. The other thing that's changed is that we already have a data point on what the Supreme Court is trying to do. And that's a Mississippi case that the court has agreed to hear this term. That case involves a law banning abortion at 15 weeks, which is well before the typical point of viability at 24 weeks, the court had lots of more incremental options if it wanted to chip away at Roe or take its time. The court took this case, I think most of us assume with an eye to upholding Mississippi's law. What that looks like in practical terms is that the court either has to reverse all of Roe or say that viability is no longer an essential part of Roe, which would be a substantial rewriting. Either of those things is a really big deal in a way that suggests this court is not afraid of the political fallout that might come with overruling Roe in a way that some people might have anticipated.
1: When Justice Blackman wrote the majority opinion in Roe, mm-hmm. he was quite attentive to public opinion at the time and I think tried to right. land that judgment in a place that reflected what the majority of Americans wanted. How has public opinion on abortion changed since 1973?
3: I think that's one of the most remarkable things, and one of the things that the whole row is the problem narrative misses, is that it hasn't changed much, right? If you look at opinion today in America on abortion, it looks strikingly like it does in Europe, and it looks strikingly like it did in 1973. So early in abortion in the first trimester, you have very large majorities saying abortion should be legal and accessible. That number drops off the later in pregnancy you get. Americans seem to be in favor of restrictions, but not bans. They don't want Roe v. Wade overturned, but they want additional regulations. There, there's pretty clearly a settlement that would work. But it's not just the Supreme Court standing in the way of that. It's the fact that neither political party has ever championed that position because both political parties believe that only single issue voters, right? Only the people who care the most about this will ever vote based on abortion. So you have now a Republican party that says it wants no abortions, including in cases of rape or incest. And you have a Democratic Party that says it wants legal abortion throughout pregnancy and public funding for it.
1: And what briefly would your settlement be? What's the settlement that would command majority opinion in the U.S. or would you know, be welcomed by a majority of Americans?
3: I mean, I think that probably the closest thing would be no regulation on abortion for the first 12 weeks, um, and probably some form of support for people who can't afford it, and then access later in pregnancy only for certain very limited conditions. Certainly that would not go over well with the pro-choice or pro-life movements, but it would probably go over well with most other Americans, and it would probably also change actual abortion practice in the U.S. relatively little, because the vast majority, over 95% of abortions, are happening in the first 12 weeks anyway.
1: Mian, do you agree with Mary on this? Do you also think that actually the significance of Roe or pinning this long-running argument and controversy on Roe is misguided? Or or do you think there really is something to this argument that a big part of the problem is that it was the court that decided rather than the elected representatives?
2: Well, my feeling is that this is a very, very polarised debate that has been kept alive in part because there's always a possibility that the law can be changed by the configuration of the court. So while ordinary Americans might be, I'm sure, as, as she says, they're right, they want Roe to remain basically in place with some quite significant tweaks. I think the fact that, particularly for the anti-abortion movement, if they can get the right Supreme Court justice in place, they can overturn Roe, possibly even ban abortion altogether in many states, that, that has to be a significant factor in, the, in this long-running war.
1: John, the reason we're talking about abortion this week and the reason abortion is in the news so much in America is because of the aftershocks of the Supreme Court deciding not to strike down Texas's rather bizarre law, SB 8. Can you have a go at explaining how it works? Because it's quite complicated in a fascinating way. I
0: can, and this is going to be a somewhat of a simplification. But in effect, the Texas law provides cause of action for any citizen to sue any other citizen who helps someone who aids or abets in the performance of an abortion of any fetus older than six weeks. You can't sue the abortion patients themselves. And the state also provides a bounty, in effect, of $10,000 for any victorious suit and lets the plaintiffs recoup their legal costs. So, in effect, the state deputizes private citizens to act as enforcers. The Supreme Court declined to strike down the law, more or less based on that technicality. And the and the, and the people who created this law, the Texas Right to Life Foundation, the people were very explicit in saying this law was designed to stymie judicial review. It was designed for exactly this purpose. The Supreme Court declined to stop it because of, of standing questions. And on the one hand, I suppose that makes sense. You know, you can't complain about a court deciding an issue on a legal technicality because that's what they often do. On the other hand, do you believe for a second that this court would have let stand a law passed by, say, Vermont that allows citizens to sue other citizens for proselytizing Christianity or allows citizens in New York to sue other citizens who helped someone obtain an assault weapon? I have a hard time believing that they would. And so the federal government, Merrick Garland, has sued Texas over this law, claiming, I think persuasively, that. The state has effectively deputized private citizens to act as state actors and that this sort of Rube Goldberg enforcement strategy was effectively designed to prohibit judicial review, which itself is unconstitutional and which would permit, if left to stand, all sorts of laws like this in all sorts of states that would effectively turn citizens into state actors in a way that would be hugely undesirable politically, socially and legally.
1: Mian, this is an important point and quite a technical one. So let's pause on it for a sec. Can you explain how it is that this law was designed and apparently effectively designed to evade scrutiny or review by the Supreme Court?
2: So heartbeat bills basically ban abortion from about six weeks. They're called heartbeat bills because they refer to the time when a fetus exhibits cardiac activity. It's not really a heartbeat because there's not a heart at that point in the normal understanding of that word. But in the past, with all the other heartbeat bills that have been introduced and often passed, they've been struck down by courts because the courts are able to sue the people who typically enforce laws. Now, Texas's law gets around that by making the enforcer an ordinary citizen. So the state official who would normally have to defend a lawsuit cannot do that because they're not anything to do with the law. The law is instead enforced by civil lawsuits. So there's an idea that for the law to be overturned, because it is clearly unconstitutional, a case would have to come up, and then the whoever's involved in its enforcement can be sued, and that would overturn the law. But it's, it, no one expected it to survive up until the point in which it came into effect. So it's a bit difficult predicting what's going to happen next.
1: John, what's your take on this argument that the reason Roe remains such a live issue in American politics is that the settlement on abortion was arrived at by judges rather than by politicians.
0: I think there's certainly something to that, but I also think that even if it had been decided by politicians, it would still be controversial in America in a way that it isn't in other countries, simply because America is just a far more religious country than other rich, developed countries, and the objections to abortion, for the most part, are rooted at least nominally in religion, in a, in a religious belief that life begins at the moment of conception. That belief just isn't widely held elsewhere.
2: So in Europe and in Britain, certainly, before abortion was legalized, there was debate and there were views opposing it. But the effect of a law being passed by an elected majority of lawmakers does somehow have a kind of neutralizing effect on those two extremes. They feel that they've been listened to. I think in America pro-life activists feel that they haven't been listened to and they feel that they might be listened to in future and indeed they are being listened to now.
1: That's a very good point. Okay, thank you both. In a moment, we'll go back to the 1990s, when the anti-abortion movement turned violent. But first, as always, it's my duty to remind you that you really should subscribe to The Economist as soon as possible. In this week's issue, we write about America's new vaccine mandates. And if you enjoyed last week's podcast on American power, there's a great Lexington column on foreign policy doctrines. Our book section attempts like a defence of saying like all the time. For the best offer you should like, go to economist.com slash USPod. We'll leave that link in the notes for this episode. On Wednesday, March the 10th, 1993, Dr. David Gunn drove up to his abortion clinic in Pensacola, Florida through a throng of protesters. As he exited his car, a man in a grey suit, Michael Frederick Griffin, stepped forward from the mass, shouted, don't kill any more babies, and shot Dr. Gunn in the back three times. He died later that day on the operating table.
4: Dr. David Gunn is murdered outside Pensacola's medical clinic. Michael Griffin is convicted and is serving a life term.
1: Dr. Gunn had known he was a target. A year earlier, he'd seen a wanted poster with his face on it and parts of the pro-life movement were increasingly using violence to try to intimidate those seeking and providing abortions. The National Abortion Federation said vandalism at their clinics had doubled between 1991 and 1992. But Gunn is thought to be the first abortion doctor murdered because of his work.
0: First here is David Gunn Jr. of Birmingham, Alabama. Mr. Gunn is the 22-year-old son of Dr. David Gunn, the physician who was recently murdered outside of an abortion clinic in Pensacola, Florida. For the past several years, David traveled through the South with his father to clinics where Dr. Gunn performed abortions. In Washington, Democratic
1: lawmakers, including the then-chair of the House Judiciary Subcommittee, Chuck Schumer, had spent the early 90s trying to pass the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, known as the FACE Act in a bid to protect those seeking and providing abortions.
4: I just wanted to say thanks for having me here, and um, I don't have anything prepared. I'm really nervous about this anyway.
1: David Gunn, Jr. was speaking in April 1993, less than a month after his father was killed.
4: My father told me numerous times about the harassment that he was receiving. He was being followed from clinic to clinic. He had begun to arm himself because he was feeling so threatened by these people. Um, I would just like for the harassment to stop, the hate mail to stop, the encouragement of hate that these groups give to their members. I mean, they they encourage this type of action. It, it, It shouldn't be like that. They shouldn't. I just wish that people would listen to what we're saying.
1: Lawmakers did listen to David Gunn as his father's murder was one of the driving forces for the FACE Act finally being passed by Congress with bipartisan support. It made it a federal crime to block access to abortion clinics or threaten or injure those going inside with up to a year in prison and a $100,000 fine, the maximum punishment for first offenders. We simply cannot, we must not continue to allow the tax, the incidence of arson, the Campaigns of intimidation upon law-abiding citizens. President Clinton signed it into law on May the 26th, 1994, with David Gunn Jr. and his sister Wendy
0: present. No person seeking medical care, no physician providing that care, should have to endure harassments or threats or obstruction or intimidation or even murder
1: from vigilantes who take the law into their own hands because they think they know what the law ought to be. The National Abortion Federation said the FACE Act did reduce violence, although 10 more people have been killed outside abortion clinics in the United States since Dr. Gunn's murder. John, often when people look at American politics, they assume that everything is getting worse all of the time. But... When it comes to the tactics of the pro-life movement, I think it's instructive to remember that, you know, back in the 90s, there was a lot of violence at abortion clinics. There were bombs, there were threats. That, thankfully, has gone away. Can you talk a bit about how the tactics of the pro-life and also the pro-choice movement have changed over the
0: past 10, 20 years? Yeah, the violence that you saw in the 1990s really is much rarer now. There were three people shot in 2015 in abortion-related protests, but that really doesn't happen much. You know, the movements of of assassination and bombing are always distasteful, but they are both distasteful and hypocritical when they come from a movement that purports to be pro-life. So you've seen a switch from that to much more sort of legalistic arguments and also a lot more persuasion geared toward the idea that a fetus is a person. and mentioned heartbeat bills. When I was covering the American South in the early 2010s, there were a number of personhood bills that were wending their way through state legislatures. And these were bills that set out to define a person as a form of life that began at conception. So it's a much more humanizing tactic that pro-life activists use now. And as a result, I think those tactics have made the pro-choice activists far more defensive just because the argument that you're killing a person, that there's a person whose life begins at conception, is somewhat more compelling than the sort of specter of violence and oppression that those tactics in the 1990s gave off.
1: Advances in medical imaging have a big part to play in this as well, don't they? I mean, the fact that you can put a billboard up by a highway of a fetus at, you know, twelve weeks that looks baby shaped, and then ask people to call their local congressman to prevent murder is a big part of it, I think. And me and when it comes to violence in the pro life cause, which sounds like an oxymoron but isn't, or at least wasn't in the nineteen nineties, it's sometimes said that more violence occurs when a Democrat is in the White House and less when a Republican is because pro-life activists just feel like they're being listened to more and they're making progress when there's a Republican administration. Is is that true, as far as you can tell?
2: I was very struck by something a doctor who is open about performing very late-term abortions told me, which is that under Trump particularly, he felt safer than he had in a long time because he felt that those very extremist pro-life activists were being listened to. It'll be interesting to see what happens under a Biden administration during which you know, abortion activists were also being listened to at a state level. Uh,
1: and also at the Supreme Court level. Can you tell us a bit more about that story you wrote about late-term abortions? Because I think that's a subject that the pro-choice side on this quite often doesn't really want to talk about. It's important to underline that they're rare, don't happen very often, but nevertheless, they, they do happen. And I remember talking to you when you were doing the reporting at the time, and I, I think you found it, I don't want to say upsetting, because you're pretty hard-headed, but it made quite an impression on you.
2: It did. I I went to an abortion clinic that's known for performing abortions very late in pregnancy, up into the third trimester. And I I interviewed the doctor who does these abortions, who's very, very open about his reasons for doing so. And a nurse described to me the the way in which a fetus that really resembles very closely a baby is aborted. It's a a long and, and... traumatic process, certainly for the women involved. It nonetheless bears no resemblance to the sort of rhetoric and language that Donald Trump used as he was fond of talking about late term abortions, because talking about late term abortions is a very good way to rile up pro-life voters. But he would talk about babies being ripped from their mother's wombs and obviously the actual surgical process and nothing like that, but it still is quite something to listen to. And I think when Americans are asked about what they think about very late abortions, they feel much more uncomfortable about them than they do first trimester abortions. Same as, you know, people in European and other countries. Uh, early abortions are recognised as a, as a necessary thing, but late abortions, people would like to introduce laws that protect against them.
1: Okay, thank you both. Well, pro-life activists have been extremely successful over the past couple of decades and that coincides with a period when they've turned their back on violence and pursued a variety of legal strategies that all run through the supreme court we'll be back in a moment to hear from a texan anti-abortion activist who was taken by surprise by the court's latest decision Let's hear from a prominent member of the pro-life movement in Texas. I've been talking to Kyleen Wright, CEO of the Texans for Life Coalition, and she had some pretty spicy things to say about the accusations of hypocrisy sometimes leveled by liberals against anti-abortion activists. But first, she took me back to her school days.
5: I was 15 years old and the question of abortion had come up in a sex ed class. And the teacher just shook her head vehemently and said, No, she would never do that, but she wouldn't tell us what it was. So I ran all the way home to ask my father what it was. And he gave me a really murky answer. And I didn't really even know what. meant at all. Of course, back then 15 was very different from 15. Now this was over four decades ago, but he was, he said, well, it's really not a good thing, honey, but sometimes a girl gets in trouble. And I I didn't know what that meant. You know, she gets in trouble. Did she not do her homework? But my brother was standing right there and he was in a pre-med program and he just started shaking his head saying, no, that's not, that's not right at all. So he ordered me a packet from a pro-life organization. And I remember opening it when it came in the mail. I remember where I was standing. I remember being horrified thinking, this is not the land of the free and brave. This is not my America. And there was not seemingly a lot I could do at 15, but my brother became very active and I became sort of his assistant. And I think at this stage of my life, it's safe to say it's a lifelong calling. It's something that I have never been able to shake. Can you remember where
1: you were and what your reaction or feeling was when the recent Texas bill was passed and when it was signed into law by um, Governor Greg Abbott?
5: I'm not sure where I was exactly when it began to dawn on me this bill was going to go into effect There are over 11, I believe, heartbeat bills that have gotten no interest from the Supreme Court. None of them had gone into effect. And so definitely was not expecting this to go into effect. Uh, We did not prioritize it for that reason. We had um, sort of a different legal strategy. It was just sort of like early Christmas
1: one question that liberals sometimes raise about the pro-life movement is why people engaged in the movement as you are don't spend more time talking about other things that save lives like perhaps investing in health care or you know public health measures or gun control or, or ending the
5: death penalty. What's your answer to that? Well, I think that it's quite the distraction. Um, we have people who are called to all kinds of different service in our country. We don't ask someone who has decided to be a healer why he doesn't also uh, or she advocate for policy. I'm not aware of any other movement where we're expected to do everything to solve all the ills of the world. It's as if the abortion advocates and sometimes liberals are really saying is that until you've solved every other world problem, you cannot be about the business of saving puppies or babies. And we reject that in its entirety.
1: (laughs) If you look at public opinion, it suggests, as you say, that abortion in the third trimester is really unpopular. A majority of Americans would like abortion to be legal in the first trimester, and then you find some cutoff point in the second trimester. That would be a lot closer to what the goal of your movement is, I think. But is that a compromise you'd accept? My my sense is not.
5: Well, our organisation has always pursued an incremental approach. Until such time as we are able to eliminate abortion, to make it unthinkable, and yes, make it illegal, then we are willing to work to restrict abortion. And we do realize that America is like a very, very big ship. It took me a long time to get to this point, but it wasn't going to turn around on a dime. And I don't think it will be the case. Turning uh, public opinion around is um, in a large country is is a huge endeavor. But we have made tremendous progress. And I think that, you know, the numbers vary on how the questions are asked, but I think that the support is there. It's important to realize that regardless of anything we say in the pro-life movement or the, that the abortion advocates say, everybody born in the last 25 to 30 years has a sonogram picture in their baby book and knows what they look like in the womb. The ultrasound technology is so improved. It's just a game changer. We have opened the window to the womb and there's no going back from that.
1: Do you worry that the cutoff at six weeks, which is where the Texas law draws the line, is going to mean that some or more women will end up in unsafe, perhaps illegal abortion clinics and and that their safety and their health will be endangered?
5: I I don't believe that is the case. I worry more that they're going to get unsafe abortions out of state or get unsafe abortion pills from You know, God only knows what pharmacy in what country and be harmed or injured doing a self-abortion at home with no one around. But I do believe that you will see more women uh, being preyed on by bad actors from out of state and taken advantage of that way.
1: Mian, you've spoken to Kyleen before. What did you make of what she had to say?
2: Well, I find her very sympathetic. She, she so clearly believes what she says. Um, and I think it's interesting also that she talks about supporting an incremental approach, because if some of those big pro-life groups did get behind, say, a 12-week ban, that would be real historic progress in America's abortion law. N- nonetheless, I think that no other wealthy country in the world has introduced a six-week abortion ban. It's it's not a compassionate thing to do. And if you listen to the stories that are coming out of Texas, you'll realise what this means, especially for the poor women who constitute most of the patients that abortion clinics see. So imagine if you're a woman who has two or maybe even three jobs, who lives in a state where she has to travel several hundred miles to find abortion access. Maybe she's got kids at home, maybe she's got other dependents. So it's a huge practical challenge going to another state, staying in a hotel, finding the funding to cover the cost of the abortion since federal funds don't do that. And I don't think that people who argue for, to protect the fetus in the womb should ignore the fact that all these things make late-term abortions much more likely If you worry about fetuses feeling pain, I think you should consider the fact that there will be more late-term abortions as a result of these regulations. John, it
1: seems a bit indelicate to talk about the political consequences and the electoral politics of the Texas law and the Mississippi challenge coming before the court. But nevertheless,
0: what do you think they will be? I think in the near term, there's a huge risk of Republican overreach. I think if this bill, which, as you pointed out earlier, effectively deputizes neighbors to snitch on neighbors and induces all sorts of nasty social dynamics if this bill becomes a model for bills passed in other states. That becomes a rallying point for Democrats and independents and perhaps even some right-leaning libertarians as well who may be sort of lukewarm on the issue of abortion one way or another, but who really dislike the idea of the state deputizing citizens to snitch on other citizens. So I think the risk of Republican overreach is pretty great here. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's the, the, the rights enshrined by Roe are at real risk right now. So I think neither side of the abortion debate should be feeling pretty good about the future.
1: Well, one of the frustrating things about this debate in America is public opinion is not so different from public opinion in lots of other wealthy countries. And yet America's political system seems unable to come to a compromise that would be acceptable to most Americans. John, do you think that is just going to be the case for the rest of our lifetimes? Or do you think there will be a time when Americans are not at war over abortion?
0: I think as long as America has a first-past-the-post, winner-take-all system, and congressional districts in which the real competitive race is in the primary, meaning it, it, it rewards extremes, then I have a hard time seeing how abortion becomes depolarized, unfortunately. I think that it will remain contentious, I'm reluctant to make predictions for the rest of our lifetime, which I hope will be long, but I think it will remain contentious in in at least the near and medium terms. Even for those people who have a settled view on abortion one way or the other, it doesn't mean that it's a sort of settled positive view. I mean, it can be quite uncomfortable, right? You think about someone like Joe Biden, who is a Catholic and is pro-choice. I think there are a lot of people who are in that particular dilemma.
2: I think Biden was hoping that he wouldn't be labelled as pro-choice. He, he clearly is, but he, he's having a hard time from the Catholic bishops at the moment. During the primary, he decided that he had to finally oppose the Hyde Amendment, which is the measure that bans public funding for most abortions. That means that bishops have him down as a pro-choice politician, and the US bishops are now trying to draw up guidelines that would exclude politicians that are pro-choice from receiving communion. Pope Francis was asked about this this week, and he slightly ducked the question. He said that he's never refused communion to anyone. He said that that bishops should minister with compassion, not judgment, to politicians. But he also said, as he had to say, that abortion is murder. But the Pope's the Pope; he has to uphold Catholic teaching. Biden is the president, and he has to make sure that American women aren't forced to resort to backstreet abortions. I, I believe that the Catholic Catechism teaches the, the primacy of the conscience. So. It's quite possible that Biden is off the hook theologically, although US bishops and lots of right-wing Catholics won't accept that.
1: Well, Mian, I think the primacy of conscience is a great place to end this one. But before I let you and John go, it's quiz time. The Economist first wrote about abortion in October 1843 with the rather grisly tale of William Haynes. The London salesman was accused of killing his wife, quote, by administering poison to her with the view of procuring abortion, under the impression that she was enceinte, which was not the case, close quote. The Victorian economist was clearly uncomfortable with the word pregnant, and so wrote it in French. Haynes' unfortunate wife was not named in the article. His poison of choice, potash, is used as a fertiliser in farming. It was also the subject of the first ever patent issued in the US, signed in 1790 by none other than George Washington, himself a keen farmer. But what was the first cash crop that Washington, or rather Washington's enslaved workers, grew at his farm in Mount Vernon? Tobacco.
2: Tobacco, yeah.
1: Tobacco, you're both correct. I think John got the whisker before, but that just could have been a delay on the line. (laughs) Washington soon realised that growing tobacco wasn't particularly profitable and switched to growing grains instead. Next question. Mount Vernon was also home to George Washington's fishery on the Potomac. Two species of fish were especially abundant in the river at the time. Name them. Trout and shad.
2: That's not fair. I'm not interested in fishing at all. Um, carp. Carp and trout.
1: Phasman Wins gets half a point there. The answer is shad and herring. Surprisingly, I would have thought the Potomac would be too warm for herring, but apparently both shad and herring... Fazman, you went for trout and shad, so you get half a point. Me, Despite coming from a family of keen fishers, uh, you flunked that one, I'm afraid. American shad was so plentiful, it was known as the fish that fed the nation's founders. So there.
2: And it's delicious. I know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, your boys have been catching it recently, haven't they? Yeah. On the That's same it. river.
2: On the same river. They have to put it back,
0: actually. I'm impressed. I have never, in, in a lifetime of intermittent fishing, I've never caught a shad. They are so twitchy and hard to manage.
2: It's the most amazing sight I think I've ever seen, the Potomac kind of hopping and and bubbling with these fish that jump so high. Yeah. It's like this sort of electrical current running through the water.
1: Well, I've never seen that. I'm going to add that to my to-do list. Thank you, Miam. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you both. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone you know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.